You know, the, the really funny thing, you want to talk about how ubiquitous this idea has become. Uh, I read, there's a website I read sometimes when I'm keeping track of the far right called The Federalist. It's a very right wing um, editor, like uh, periodical uh, in the United States, pushes, you know, all kinds of far right ideas. Not quite alt right, but definitely far right. Uh, and there was an essay by one of their intellectuals talking about the cultural hegemony of left wing intellectuals through universities. And I was like, oh, my God, this is how fucking prominent Gramsci has become, you know, a hundred years after his death, a little bit less. Even the right is now talking about cultural hegemony, uh, except, you know, of course, we're the ones who are the cultural hegemons now. Yeah. And hegemony cleans up a little bit of the like, yeah, despite that, that's ironic, appropriating Marxist terms. But then hegemony cleans up the old Marxist versions of ideology. So if you go into the German ideology that Marx wrote, you'll find like two sorts of notions of ideology. One of them, one of them is that what people hold valuable and what they believe in corresponds to their own economic interests. So there's the kind of class-based definition. And then you have the second definition, which is the ideas that hold sway in any given society are those of the ruling class. So you have the more already sort of hegemonic what Gramsci will later call hegemony, but with an emphasis on culture rather than economic situation or just plain political power. So you ha he cleans up that sort of those two Marxist notions of ideology. Can I just like interject? Because I want to ask, what are our thoughts about this? Because I quite like it. I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense. And I actually don't think this is inconsistent with what we call ideology theory. I think that they overlap in a lot of ways, right? That you can have unconscious ideological presuppositions that you're not aware of and that even the people who espouse them aren't aware of or benefit them aren't aware of. And you can have hegemonic institutions, forms of education and pedagogy, you know, you name it, that are pumped into the population more consciously. So I, I like it personally, but I just I, want to see what people thought. I think I like it, but I'm, I'm caught up in the historical significance of this idea, right? Because cultural studies, what, what's weirdly called cultural Marxism today, this he's one of the authors along with Benjamin and the Frankfurt School and some of these early revisionists who opened Marxism up to culture and literature and art and made these into important topics, right? So literary studies is very Marxist after, I don't know, you say after in the, by the late 20th century because of these ideas about the role culture plays in emancipatory struggles and these attempts to explain why certain people follow fascism. You know, Gramsci saw it all over Italy, Benito Mussolini's rise, and they were wondering, well, how come, how come the workers aren't getting behind us? We're out for their interests. In many cases, the fascists are openly against the interests of the workers, yet somehow they're fed this line of bullshit and they buy it. So they look to culture and art and literature to help explain. And then on the other hand, those then become ideological battlegrounds for different ideas as well. Yeah, I was gonna say, I think that cultural or that historical background is extremely helpful for understanding all the authors you mentioned, right? Because there really is this sense of confusion and tragedy uh, when at the very moment around the 1920s where the First World War had happened, there was a Bolshevik revolution in Russia, 
Stalin hadn't been arrived yet. People were really thinking like, oh, this is our moment, right? This is when it's all going to fall. Socialism and then communism will appear, uh, you know, just on the horizon. Uh, instead, what you get is Mussolini, Hitler, Franco, uh, and a host of other lesser figures, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Often with mass support. And I can, there's really this tragic sense to Gramsci and definitely Adorno's work in that respect, right? That, you know, it's the end of the dream. The noble are the more naive kinds of Marxist dreams that yeah. people once had. Well, that's very important, yeah, because they were reading the Bolshevik ideas and the Russian interpretations of Marxism throughout Europe. And also many of these Marxist parties were getting financial support from the from the Bolsheviks as well. So it really was it really was a weird thing. Like people do imagine it in this way where like Russia is secretly funding all of these organizations. But I mean, that's what was happening. There was capitalism yeah. and then there was the Russian sphere after the Bolshevik revolution. And they, you know, they decide who to give. just like fucking politics today. You're a big corporation. You decide which party you want to fund. We just don't look at that as ideological warfare. We look at that as you get to choose because it's a democracy. But back then it was a it was a lot more um, politicized, dangerous, deadly and radical. Well, funny story. My father-in-law was actually invited to the Soviet Union to do a master's degree and then a PhD for exactly that reason. Uh, he never completed them because the Soviet Union fell <laughs> uh, when he was in the middle of his graduate studies. And they're basically like, yeah, look, there's no money for anything now, uh, let alone engaging in glo- uh, contests for global hegemony. So, yeah, stick around if you want, but I would recommend you go home because it's winner take all right now. It's interesting that you said that this could have been written yesterday because a lot of the I mean, we use online Marxists as a foil often because they're still debating the the finer points of Marxism, what's correct, what's incorrect. And what's interesting about Gramsci is he's rather critical of Mm -hmm. Lenin in particular for, Mm -hmm. first of all, vanguardism, which is you need to have the party leading. And he shifts that to what all the academics like. He says, no, we have intellectuals. And that's what this text is about. Uh, we have culture creators, you could say, that uh, are just as important as a specific party. He also diverges from Lenin on the idea of class. And this is a thing that I still see oh, yeah. um, being argued about on forums and so on about like, is class real? Is the professional managerial class a class? Or is it just part of the bourgeoisie? Uh, Gramsci answers this in 1930, saying, yes, it's a class. And you have organic intellectuals emerging from these uh, partial classes. He actually changes it from class, and he calls it historic blocks. blocks. Yeah, yeah, that's that, that's what I got out of the readings, too, is that Gramsci, I mean, my reading, is that Gramsci didn't really like the maybe the orthodox interpretation of class. Now, if you know anything about the development of culture studies, this is a huge, huge issue throughout the 20th century in Marxism is like, yeah, like we were saying, is class real? What is class? And Gramsci didn't like this. I don't know if it's traceable to Marx or maybe it was more the Russian Orthodox interpretation that class is this static thing. But with this idea of historic block, he wants to make class into a dynamism say, this dynamic development of social groups where they're created during historical moments or through these major events that we also often call conjunctures. 
these big events that create historic blocks. And it's this almost event-based Marxism rather than a static structural, class structural Marxism. 